One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Here today, we have something for you. This is coming back to our, our our knowledge base, our giving you what the folks might want, might not want, but a little bit of history, a little gaming history to start the day off. It's nice to switch it up a little bit. You know, we've been doing these bonus episodes where it's not quite as informational but still is a little bit, just depending on what we're talking about. This is going to be one that I think trends a little bit more in that direction, but it's something that has been around, I think, for a while now um, to where most people are familiar with it. It's a really interesting idea just from the very beginning and has started to, I think, rise in popularity and an investment and big-time investment that have led to these uh, more serious competitions and sporting events yeah and and esports in and of itself i mean has grown exponentially in i mean i'd even say in the last five years pre-covid post-covid we're still seeing some increases in that and obviously we had the huge rise obviously coming before covid but we're still seeing that tick up and up and up league of legends overwatch dota 2 you know even into smaller tournaments or even bigger tournaments like fortnite that we're still seeing a lot of this coverage grow and grow and grow. And we even saw, spoiler, a bit of that coming into the Olympics with the announcement in 2021 that we're going to see like video games in Olympics. The video games they chose are awful and some of the worst things I've ever seen. (laughs) But guess what? Olympics are corrupt and whoever's greasing whose pockets gets to pick which games get played. That's right. That's the way it works, baby. (laughs) I mean, it is. It's really cool. This whole concept really fascinates me because with traditional sports, you know the rules. Like There are slight variations maybe in international play and things like that. But for the most part, soccer is soccer. Baseball is baseball. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got uh, its sister sport, cricket, things like that, these little variations. But for the most part, people are playing the same game. They've been playing it for decades, if not hundreds of years at this point. Um, But with the way that video games evolve and how rapidly they evolve, we're not just seeing, you know, esports being organized. We're also seeing the games that are being played transform and see the industry sort of transform along with that. And so there's all these moving pieces that go along with esports that are really fascinating to talk about. And I want to take this back because I think when we think of esports, like for me, 
the first two games that kind of come to mind are Unreal Tournament or oh, Halo yeah. and kind of those early shooters that kind of formed these ideas of esports, even kind of making the congregation of them. Absolutely. But I want to take it back all the way to the 70s because the earliest known video game competition took place on October 19th, 1972 at Stanford University for the game Space War. Stanford students were invited to an intergalactic Space War Olympics whose grand prize was a year subscription for Rolling Stone, with Bruce Baumgart winning the five-man free-for-all tournament and Tovar and Robert E. Moss winning the team competition. So, you know, starting off, you know, you're in college, you got to figure out something to do, and what a cool way to do it to start to get this new form of entertainment into it. Now, contemporary esports has roots in competitive face-to-face arcade video game competitions. A forerunner of esports was held by Sega in 1974. The All Japan TV Game Championships, a nationwide arcade video game tournament in Japan. The tournament was intended by Sega to promote the game and sales of video games in the country. There were local tournaments held in 300 locations across Japan, and then 16 finalists from across the country competed in the final elimination rounds at Tokyo's Hotel Pacific. Prizes awarded including television sets, color and black and white, cassette tape recorders, and transistor radios. According to Sega, the tournament, quote, proved to be the biggest event ever in the arcade game industry and was attended by members from leading Japanese newspapers and leisure industry companies. Sega stressed the importance of such tournaments to foster better business relationships between the maker location customer and create an atmosphere of competition on TV amusement games. In 1977, Gremlin Industries, a year before being acquired by Sega, held a marketing stunt to promote their early arcade snake game Hustle in the United States, involving the Gremlin Girls, who were a duo of professional female arcade players Sabrina Osmond and Lynn Reed. The pair traveled across 19 American cities, where players could challenge them in best-of-three matches for a chance to win money. The duo were challenged by a total of 1,300 players, with only about seven of whom managed to beat them. That's pretty cool. I feel like arcades were especially conducive for this style of play because it's very Mm -hmm. clear, you know, you have the score. Who's going to get the highest score here? Let's go head to head and and see who can manage that. And the game's programming, you know, has a very specific way that it speeds up. And you just have to master that. You also have to just, I think, have a ton of familiarity within the game. Um, Whereas now there's a lot more strategy going into it, different styles of play, different things that you can do and, and try and sort of do like more of a rock, paper, scissors matchup where it's it's mm-hmm. more about whatever your specific strategy is, if that works well for that, and then alternating depending on maybe who your opponent is. With this, it's all head-to-head. You're really doing the same thing and just seeing who comes out on top. It's really cool, really pure. Well, that's the thing, is, is, is especially arcade games, when they started to become multiplayer, even before multiplayer, when we're talking, like I said, score competitions, this is where we're already seeing some of that competition come into it of even just between you and your friends feeding them quarters trying to get the high score in the machine that competitive nature is already innately built into these machines so when you can be like hey 
let's legitimize you playing these games. Let's legitimize this idea of competition by awarding prizes, awarding free console cabinets, awarding money, awarding prizes. You get the idea of competition and sporting um, very early on. And so we see in this era of arcade cabinets, just that inkling of an idea start to spark kind of all over. Exactly. And, you know, having those high scores there was definitely very cool. Um, something that you could sort of compete within the person, you know, not actually being there, just within the cabinet itself, but knowing like you could come out on top, your name would be there until the next time you went to the arcade. Maybe someone had surpassed you at that point. And, you know, on that note, the golden age of arcade video games was heralded by the famous Space Invaders in 1978, which popularized the use of persistent high score for all players. And several video games in the next several years followed suit, adding other means of tracking high scores, such with high score tables that included the player's initials in games like Asteroids in 1979. High score chasing became a popular activity and a means of competition. And the Space Invaders Championship was held by Atari in 1980 and was the earliest large-scale video game competition, attracting more than 10,000 participants across the United States, establishing competitive gaming as a mainstream hobby. It was won by Rebecca Heinemann. And Walter Day, owner of an arcade in Iowa, had taken it upon himself to travel across the United States to record the high scores on various games in 1980, and on his return, founded Twin Galaxies, which was a high-score record-keeping organization. And the organization went on to help promote video games and publicize its records through publications such as the Guinness Book of World Records. And in 1983, it created the U.S. National Video Game Team. The team was involved in competitions such as running the Video Game Masters Tournament for Guinness World Records and sponsoring the North American Video Game Challenge Tournament. A multi-city tour in 1983, the Electronic Circus, was used to feature these players in live challenges before audiences and draw more people to video games. These video game players and tournaments were featured in well-circulated newspapers and popular magazines, including Life and Time, and became minor celebrities at the time, such as Billy Mitchell. Besides establishing the competitive nature of games, these types of promotional events all form the nature of the marketing and promotion that form the basis of modern esports. In 1984, Konami and Centuri jointly held an international track and field arcade game competition that drew more than a million players from across Japan and North America. Playmeter in 1984 called it the coin-op event of the year and an event on a scale never before achieved in the industry. As of 2016, it holds the record for the largest organized video game competition of all time, according to Guinness World Records. Now, televised esports events aired during this period included the American show Starcade, which ran from 1982 to 1984, airing a total of 133 episodes, on which contestants would attempt to beat each other's high scores on an arcade game. A video game tournament was included as part of the TV show, that's incredible, and tournaments were also featured as part of the plot on various films, including 1982's Tron. In the UK, the BBC game show First Class included competitive video game rounds featuring contemporary arcade games, such as Hypersports, 720, and Paperboy. In the United States, 
the Amusement Players Association held its first U.S. national video game team competition in January 1987, where Versus Super Mario Bros. was popular among competitive arcade players. The 1988 game Netrek was an internet game for up to 16 players, written almost entirely in cross-platform open-source software. Netrek was the third internet game, the first internet game to use meta servers to locate open game servers, and the first to have persistent user information. In 1993, it was credited by Wired Magazine as the first online sports game. So pretty cool. There's such a cool nostalgia factor to those 80s arcade games, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Something really special about like the way that they light up. There's like the CRT feel to everything, obviously. Yep. But a lot of flashing lights and things. You see it sort of romanticized now, I think, in a lot of movies and TV shows, just as like this really cool period with a lot of LEDs, but it, then they kind of take it and give it like this modern, brighter, more colorful mm -hmm. twist as well. And combining those two things, that style of those 80s games, along with the new age, I think more electronic style of music and also like the LEDs and more high quality, um, higher tech lighting equipment that exists now, I, I think it creates this really, really cool atmosphere um, that you can see sort of emulated within these current tournaments. I mean, a little bit less of that CRT 80s arcade feel, but still that same like big dark room with a lot of lights and screens lighting everything up similar to the old arcades. Yeah. And, and I think when you bring in showmanship, and when you start to bring in just a bit more to legitimize what you're doing, I mean, I, I think it really starts to make it more mainstream, make it apparent, make it something that has cause for it to happen in the first place. Again, a lot of that can just be conjuncture on just people are bored, let's do something. But getting business backing, getting someone to fund these things and to start to even just promote your own product. But to get the idea out there that these are legitimate competitions, you can, you can have some fun with it. Absolutely. And the fighting game Street Fighter II, which was released in 1991, popularized the concept of direct tournament-level competition between two players. Previously, video games most often relied on high scores to determine the best player, but this changed with Street Fighter II, where players would instead challenge each other directly, face-to-face, -face, to determine the best player, paving the way for the competitive multiplayer and deathmatch modes found in modern action games. The popularity of fighting games such as Street Fighter and Marvel vs. Capcom in the 1990s led to the foundation of the International Evolution Championship Series, or EVO, esports tournament in 1996. Large esports tournaments in the 1990s include the 1990 Nintendo World Championships, which toured across the United States and held its finals at Universal Studios Hollywood in California. Nintendo held a second World Championships in 1994 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System called the Nintendo PowerFest 94. There were 132 finalists that played in the finals in San Diego, California, and Mike Iarossi took home first prize. 
Blockbuster Video, throwback, Mm -hmm. also ran their own World Game Championships in the early 1990s, co-hosted by GamePro Magazine. Citizens from the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and Chile were eligible to compete. Games from the 1994 championships included NBA Jam and Virtua Racing. And that, going away from that high score era, I feel like it's just so key for the involvement of video games in general. Yes. Because it really, it, it went from these just constant repeating cycles that sped up, made the game harder to a point to where it was just impossible to keep going or people thought it was impossible. You know, some people kind of cheated a little bit to keep going past those points to where, mm-hmm. you know, it was actually supposed to be impossible. But to, to move away from that and make it more about, one, completing storylines and things like that was, was yeah. such a huge breakthrough in video games. But then on top of that, yeah, doing that truly direct competition where you're not playing against a computer and just comparing notes, you're playing against another human being. That's a totally different style of play. It requires a totally different intelligence and strategy to be able to do that even today. Yeah, and bringing the real sports games in, bringing NBA Jam, which was a huge turning point for a lot of sports games and competition games, and having these early 90s ideas and having companies like Nintendo be involved and push these tournaments uh, and try and get more people involved with it was huge in terms of coming up with, again, what we call modern esports, but the idea of gaming competitions, gaming tournaments uh, built it up. And there were a number of television shows featuring esports during this period, which included the British shows Games Master and Bad Influence, the Australian game show Amazing, where in one round, contestants competed in a video game face-off, and the Canadian game show Video and Arcade Top 10. Not only that, we had a lot of different US-based game shows for kids that involved being in a video game, using the ideas of like Snake or Centipede within some game show to start building upon that. So the idea of just breaking games out of these arcade cabinets, as you had said, into more mainstream ideas starts to foster that idea of just video games being mainstream. Yeah, I mean, and I think that you see a lot of similarities in 90s game shows and video games, like you're saying. I think Mm -hmm. of Legends of the Hidden Temple. Mm -hmm. You know, there's games like that. Tales from the Crypt, I think, used to have, or there was some kind of spinoff with that Tales of the Crypt guy where they basically did, like, all these little activities with video screens and things, too. I mean, there were all sorts of television shows that were including elements of platformers and video games and putting them into real-life situations, which I think was always the idea, always sort of the goal is was the immersion within those games. Yeah, and in the 1990s, many games also benefited from increasing internet activity, especially PC games. Inspired by the fighting games Street Fighter II, Fatal Fury, and Art of Fighting, id Software's John Romero established competitive multiplayer in online games with Doom's Deathmatch mode in 1993. Tournaments established in the late 90s included the Cyber Athlete Professional League, or CPL, QuakeCon, and the Professional Gamers League. PC games played at the CPL included the Counter-Strike series, Quake series, StarCraft, and WarCraft. So yeah, we start to see this interconnectivity where you don't have to travel around the country to do these things. You don't have to just play in these local tournaments. 
But with deathmatch mode being included and things like Counter-Strike bringing even more of that competition to it and StarCraft, WarCraft, these strategy games, you start to have more of a diversity coming out into the gaming sphere, uh, into these first-person shooters, strategy, competition games, platformers. You're starting to diversify what's available and where people can start to, quote-unquote, specialize within their gaming field. Absolutely. And on that growth, there were global tournaments as well. Specifically, the growth of esports in South Korea is thought to have been influenced by the mass building of broadband internet networks following the 1997 Asian financial crisis. It is also thought that the high unemployment rate at the time caused many people to look for things to do while out of work. Instrumental to this growth of esports in South Korea was the prevalence of the Kormani-style internet cafe or LAN gaming center known as a PC bank. The Korean Esports Association, an arm of the Ministry of Culture, Sports, and Tourism, was founded in 2000 to promote and regulate esports in the country. Minister of Culture, Sports, and Tourism Park Ji-won coined the term esports at the founding ceremony of the 21st Century Professional Game Association, currently known as Korean Esports Association, in the year 2000. And so that's a big moment within itself. Yeah, and that's really why we see a lot of professional esports players and some of the top of the top coming out of Korea, coming out of China, coming out of Japan, because we start to see these internet cafes and the idea of esports come up and start to sprout. I mean, look at this, as early as 2000, kind of in the late 90s, bringing this idea of like, we need money. We need to figure out a way to boost culture tours. We need a way to get people into work start making them work in tournaments. I mean, yeah, it's a great idea. And, you know, obviously with a high unemployment rate, you could get a high pool, high quality players as well that mm-hmm. really like, you know, can truly dedicate the time to being good at these video games. And to this day, I mean, when I think of StarCraft, I think of South Korean players really being the, the top tier players for that yep. sport. Absolutely. Evo Moment 37, also known as the Dago Perry, refers to a portion of a Street Fighter III Third Strike semifinal match held at Evolution Championship Series 2004 between Dago Umehara playing Ken Masters and Justin Wong playing Chun-Li. And during this match, Umehara made an unexpected comeback by parrying 15 consecutive hits of Wong's super art move while having only one pixel of vitality. Umahara subsequently won the match. An evil moment number 37 is frequently described as the most iconic and memorable moment in the history of competitive video gaming, being at one point the most watched competitive gaming moment of all time, and it has been compared to sports moments such as Babe Ruth's called shot and the miracle on ice. And I think anybody that's played a fighting video game can relate to this moment. But when you're able to do it against another human opponent, and especially do it in such a highly competitive, highly visible environment, that's really awesome. Really cool. It's, it's insane. If you haven't watched this, you can look this clip up. Uh, it's fantastic. And if anyone knows Chun-Li, like basically a very fast character. And when you are in that kind of super arts, that's when you're kind of doing your like basically special move. Yeah. Um, and basically doing that Chun-Li kick and be able to like, parry all of those to come back from the jaws of defeat is huge super cool and those moments are just so much fun to see 
see him a lot of times in different tournaments, some comeback. You always love a comeback story. So like having that is just really amazing to start to establish more and more this idea of just this as a sport or this as like a creative activity built around not only that competition at this point, but talent. Well, and, you know, we're a video game podcast, so people listening to this have probably experienced this on some level, but there really is that moment. It's similar to like a sports movie where it's that, you know, that come from behind victory that no one's expecting. And now it's become a trope in those movies, of course. But there is this elation that you get when it is like you're on the brink, you're about to die. You just barely managed to defeat whoever you're fighting or trying to get past or whatever it is. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. down to your last life. There is this sense of victory that just comes over you that really is. I mean, comparing it to Babe Ruth's cold shot, Miracle on Ice, you know, that specific moment, I think that just so many people can relate to that type of feeling within a video game, just really being back up against the wall. And mm-hmm. I think that's what makes it really cool. It's, it's a universal experience in that regard. Absolutely. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And one of the big shifts that we start to see, we start to get, again, I keep saying it, but more legitimized, is in April 2006, the G7 Teams Federation were formed by seven prominent Counter-Strike teams. The goal of the organization was to increase stability in the esports world, particularly in standardizing player transfers and working with leagues and organizations. And this is huge because we start to get a legitimization of these teams. It's not just me, you, Derek, grabbing a couple buddies. You know, we're now the gamer dudes going out to start our team, we now have to be registered. We're now under the idea of making trades, of making transfers, of having these players legitimized on these teams as recognized players. A lot of these teams, a lot of these organizations, we still hear from today because the founding members were Four Kings, Fnatic, Made in Brazil, Mouse Sports, or Mouse Esports, Nip, SK Gaming, and Team 3D. The organization only lasted until 2009 before dissolving, but it set the groundwork for the idea of establishing these different league plays and establishing a lot of these teams. I mean, we still see Fnatic as one of the top teams around, SK Gaming being huge there for South Korea. Uh, And a lot of these have transferred over to different organizations or established into different organizations. But this was the idea, the start of standardizing. And now the 2000s were a popular time for televised esports. Television coverage was best established in South Korea with StarCraft and WarCraft 3 competitions 
regularly televised by dedicated 24-hour cable TV game channels on GumNet and MBC Game. Elsewhere, esports television coverage was sporadic. The German Giga Television covered esports until it shut down in 2009. The United Kingdom's satellite television channel xleague.tv broadcast esports competitions from 07 to 09. The online esports-only channel ESL TV briefly attempted a paid television model renamed Giga2 from June of 06 to autumn of 07. And we actually see ESL TV is now a, a huge Twitch TV channel. The French channel Game One broadcast esports matches in a show called Arena Online for the X-Fire Trophy. The United States channel ESPN hosted Madden NFL competitions in a show called Madden Nation from 05 to 08. DirecTV broadcast the Championship Gaming Series Tournament for two seasons in 07 and 08, and CBS aired pre-recorded footage of the 2007 World Series of Video Games Tournament that was held in Louisville, Kentucky. So this is that start, that, that inkling of like trying to get traction, trying to get some funding and money globally for these competitions that were somewhat short-lived but started and kept that ball rolling, at least until we get to the 2010s. And during the 2010s, esports grew tremendously, incurring a large increase in both viewership and prize money. Although large tournaments were founded before the 21st century, the number and scope of tournaments has increased significantly, going from about 10 tournaments in 2000 to about 260 in 2010. And many successful tournaments were founded during this period, including the World Cyber Games, the Intel Extreme Masters, and Major League Gaming. The proliferation of tournaments included experimentation with competitions outside traditional esports genres. For example, the September 2006 Fun Technologies World Wide Web Games Championship featured 71 contestants competing in casual games for a $1 million grand prize. The popularity and emergence of online streaming services have helped the growth of esports in this period and are the most common method of watching tournaments. Twitch, an online streaming platform launched in 2011, routinely streams popular esports competitions. In 2013, viewers of the platform watched 12 billion minutes of video on the service, with the two most popular Twitch broadcasters being League of Legends and Dota 2. During one day of the international, Twitch recorded 4.5 million unique views, with each viewer watching for an average of two hours. So we see this growth happen. I mean, as we're recording this episode, you know, we've got uh, the League Spring Series, Spring Summer Series, whatever it's called now, uh, going on. I mean, you're averaging 40,000 concurrent viewers at one time, 50,000, 60, 70. As we get further in the tournament, 100,000. And that's just concurrent. Unique viewers with that, I mean, you're talking millions. They're going to cycle through that, watch for, you know, a couple matches, maybe a match or two. And it's amazing to see this growth happen and to see really League of Legends on its own grow from some fold-out chairs in basically a gym into renting out arenas that are, that are packed to the stands with all these people around. It's, it's so cool to see that blow up and be kind of the standard that people are trying to achieve at that point. Yeah, we really have gotten to see a lot of cool things just in technology in general, you know, like just seeing like these little startup companies, whether it be in video games or just general tech, it's the same thing. Um, 
really in, in both regards. It's just these risks that people took. They were just passionate about a certain thing and it, you know, caught on in, in popularity. I mean, people love League of Legends. It's been around for a long time now. It, it, it's weird to think about it as something that's not this great established competitive thing because to me it really is like the true essence of what I think about when I think about esports in general um just this you know it could be team based you have those different strategies you have these different characters you have to have a great knowledge of the game there's not any type of cheap way to get a win necessarily like you you really just have to go in as a team and i feel like it best mirrors traditional sports in that regard it absolutely does and like with sports it starts to worm its way into schools and that's what we have with esports because the modern esports boom has also seen a rise in video game companies embracing the esports potential of their products after many years of ignoring and at times suppressing the esports scene, Nintendo finally, and they still are suppressing us gamers because we are held back. We need to rise up. <laughs> <laughs> but they did host the Wii Games Summer 2010. Spanning over a month, the tournament had over 400,000 participants, making it the largest and the most expansive tournament in the company's history. In 2014, Nintendo hosted an invitational Super Smash Bros. for the Wii U competitive tournament at the 2014 E3 press conference that was streamed online on Twitch. And as we know, Halo developer 343 Industries announced in 2014 plans to revive Halo as an esport and with the creation of the Halo Championship series with a price pool of 50,000 US dollars. And we did see that. When we saw Halo Infinite drop, we started to see a lot more of that competitive scene rise. We saw viewership spike for it. We saw those ideas of them trying to revive what they had. Because as you and I talked about, whenever they started the pro series for it early on with, with Quake, with Unreal, with Halo, that was the start of those ideas of online gaming. And that obviously went through that rough patch, as we saw with most people in those like late aughts into the early 2010s and then we get that spike again when everyone finally gets really good internet and we can really start having these online competitions and on halo i mean i remember playing halo 2 and you would pretty frequently come across like professional gaming teams that mm -hmm. would just come in and just absolutely spank you in halo 2 i mean it was a lot of fun and what I think was cool about Halo specifically uh, was because it was so great, like being on Xbox Live, I think it gave a lot of awareness uh, to the eSport community as well, because it wasn't just this distant thing where you had to go and like sign up for a tournament and then it's self-contained or whatever. Like you're just playing casually at home and coming across people who are playing professionally. And you know, those mm -hmm. kind of things happen you might come across professionals in League of Legends or StarCraft or whatever, you know, now, but uh, especially for, like, the boom of console online play, I feel like Halo was really instrumental in, in bringing that type of gamer to the attention of esports. It absolutely was. And what truly helps this is that both Blizzard Entertainment and Riot Games have their own collegiate outreach programs with their North American Collegiate Championship. 
Now, one of the biggest ones I know of, uh, just because we have one here in St. Louis, is Maryville University. Uh, they are a private university that was kind of struggling. So what they did was they funneled a bunch of money into their esports program and have international recruiting. And what's hilarious is Blizzard and Riot. Now, if we want to talk about you know athletes being paid, be an esports athlete because not only do you get full ride scholarships, Blizzard and Riot are paying you to play their games. So some of these kids come out earning money playing with their scholarship with a full ride. And then Riot's usually about 100000 per kid um, is what they'll pay, depending on like where you're peaking in your tournaments. Well, but, and it's, it's such a good idea for these smaller colleges that are never going to get the top athletes. They're never going to no. have that you know, really, really profitable um, traditional sports type of uh, income. or I mean, they're just not going to be able to build something like that up. The no, people that are established are really established. So to get in on something like this on the ground floor makes a lot of sense to do that, to get out in front of it. It's huge. I mean, it's, it's huge to have that to keep your game alive on these, you know, full service games. Again, with talking about with both of these, not only do you have StarCraft, WarCraft, Overwatch hits the field and Overwatch has their full international tournament, has their collegiate tournaments. Same thing with League of Legends, with Riot has their collegiate tournaments. And in 2017, TESPA, which is Blizzard Entertainment's collegiate esports division, unveiled its new initiative to provide scholarships and prizes for collegiate esports clubs competing in its tournaments worth $1 million U.S. million. So again, because there is no establishment in universities, these are still recognized as clubs, and they don't fall under any NCAA ruling on how athletes can earn money off of the sport or if they can be paid or any of these other things. So it's still seen as a club. And that's why you can have these scholarships slash prize monies or donations, as some of them call them, to these students to encourage them to take that time out and take that same amount of time you take in a sport, training, practicing, working in it into the gaming sphere itself. Well, and, you know, that was true. But just in the last few years... They actually did pass new rules where athletes can get paid. So now that they do yes. pay athletes for, for college, so we might see even more of, of this type of boom, especially if you know it's profitable for these small colleges. The bigger colleges are going to turn their attention toward it and try and invest just as much into that as they do in their other sports programs. That's the thing. And we're seeing more universities such as Columbia College, Robert Morris University, Indiana Institute of Technology, Harrisburg University of Science Technology, all these different universities, like we said, not top sports schools. Do they have sports programs? Sure. Are they kind of like D tier, C tier type stuff? Just you're there to play. You may get a scholarship to come play, but you're kind right. of playing locally, maybe a couple, little bit of travel. So they know they can't compete with these top universities. Sure. So when you're like, hey, let's go ahead and do these tuition scholarship programs, let's bring these players out here. Because then we start to see, again, Maryville on the big screen. You're seeing these league tournaments where Maryville's leading it. You're seeing these Overwatch, these Hearthstone tournaments where they're leading it. So when you get in early, you do get that groundwork to make on it. You do get to set the standard and you get to recruit who you want to recruit to these programs. And so it is very smart to have this. And so I do want to wrap this up and talk about the physical viewership of it. 
Um, you know, obviously we have Twitch, we have YouTube, we have a number of other outlets that have these things, but there is the physical viewership of esports competitions. And their scope of the events have increased in tandem with the growth of online viewership. In 2013, the Series 3 League of Legends World Championship was held in a sold-out Staples Center. In 2014, it was in Seoul, South Korea, and had over 40,000 fans in attendance, and of course, had Imagine Dragons there, opening and closing the ceremonies. Gotta. Like, gotta have Imagine Dragons. You gotta. And they still, all of them at Riot have stayed friends, because even in Arcane, which is the League of Legends show, Imagine Dragons did the intro to it, and they're in the show. So they've stayed friends since then. But to see this growth, to see us coming from coin-op machines trying to get high scores, you know, having Sega or Nintendo kind of hold these tournaments around, to it becoming a legitimized, quote-unquote, sport in that sphere of it, or a legitimized club that starts to see funding in colleges, funding online, funding in person. And I think this is the biggest takeaway I want to push, becoming culture becoming modern culture, becoming mainstream culture of seeing these things. Not everyone might go to a tournament, but they're sold like a sports tournament. They're sold like you see other things happening. And we see that rise of esports becoming fruition, becoming a part of everyday life that really can't be ignored at this point. Yeah, it's something that I think the older generations might scoff at a little bit because... We've talked about this on the podcast. I, I think that the traditionally video games have been viewed for like a ch- a child's game. You know, this is something you're going to play a lot when you're young. You're going to grow out of it, whatever. Obviously, now we have generations that have grown up with video games. They always existed. It wasn't just like something that they came out that was like the cool thing to do when they were a teenager and then they moved on with their lives. Like, no, this is something that a lot of people do as a hobby, as a sport now, something that they're really actually passionate about. And so naturally, it makes sense to want to do that at the highest level. We've had some type of ranking system almost always consistently from the beginning, whether that be high scores whether that be tracked through your initials, made up or real, whether that be online rankings, head-to-head competitions, you know, there's all kinds of ways to track that stuff now. There's the actual MMR. Yes. There's all kinds of ways to see who is truly the best, and it makes sense to have all this stuff culminate in highly visible, highly profitable, marketable, types of competitions where you are seeing the best of the best go head to head year in and year out, same way you would any other sport. Yeah. And again, as we know, League of Legends has pretty much dominated the landscape of that. We do have still Madden tournaments that we talked about before. We still see Madden tournaments come out. We still see a lot of FPS like Call of Duty, Battlefield, or even the more centered around competition or skill, talking about bringing Counter-Strike into there. Uh, and, and bringing various others that are in that same realm of like skill and craft with it. And Riot kind of still leads the way with a lot of those and, and is coming out with more of these games that can bring more of this online competition, more of these esports ideas to fruition, even starting at ground zero, day one, first words on paper is kind of building that game to be multiplayer specific, to be for esports. Absolutely. It's really cool. I'm excited to see it keep growing. I think that the more money that keeps getting invested into players, the more visibility that it gets, the more that we'll see that. 
And we'll also see more games designed specifically to compete within this field and within this Mm -hmm. type of tournament play. And so it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. You see professional athletes that have their own esports teams now. You see companies Mm -hmm. that sponsor teams. I mean, it really is just going to keep growing. And that's super exciting for the future of video game development and for players who excel at these things. You know, being able to showcase those talents where before maybe you were just a few initials on the arcade screen down the street. Yeah. So I'm excited. It's again, you and I, Derek, this has been a lot of growing up. Video games have been such a huge portion of that. So seeing it expand, seeing it for a new generation coming out, seeing it for these kids coming in that can stretch these talents and have fun with it. And just to see where it's going to go. I'm very excited for the future of it, and we'll see. And so as we start to wrap this episode up, I want to reach out to you all. And what do you see as kind of the turning point for the future of esports? Is it something that you want to see flourish even further? Are there games that you want to see? Do you want to see even more casual tournaments, just a Stardew Valley tournament? Or, or do you want to see more of that like high-skill ceiling of something like Apex Legends or of Counter-Strike? You know, do you want to see more of that come in? Let us know. Absolutely. There will be a little Q&A. If you're on listening to this on Spotify, you can answer it there. Also, come join our Discord. There's a link to that in the description below as well. And let's talk about it. What kind of games would you like to see? What kind of games are you a pro gamer or an aspiring pro gamer? I'd love to get some perspectives like that. So this has been fun. Always glad to talk about little episodes like this with you, Alex. And uh, we'll see everybody next time. Absolutely. Take care.